Section 19 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section 19 on Egotism. Part 2. When I speak of what is interesting, however, I mean not only to a particular profession, but in general to others. Indeed, it is the very popularity and obvious interest attached to certain studies and pursuits that excites the envy and hostile regard of graver and more recondite professions. Man is perhaps not naturally an egotist, or at least he is satisfied with his own particular line of excellence and the value that he supposes inseparable from it, till he comes into the world and finds it of so little account in the eyes of the vulgar and he then turns round and vents his chagrin and disappointment on those more attractive but as he conceives superficial studies which cost less labour and patience to understand them and are of so much less use to society the injustice done to ourselves makes us unjust to others the man of science and the hard student from this cause as well as from a certain unbending hardness of mind come at last to regard whatever is generally pleasing and striking as worthless and light and to proportion their contempt to the admiration of others while the artist the poet and the votary of pleasure and popularity treat the more solid and useful branches of human knowledge as disagreeable and dull this is often carried to too great a length. It is enough that wisdom is justified of her children. The philosopher ought to smile, instead of being angry, at the folly of mankind, if such it is. And those who find both pleasure and profit in adorning and polishing the airy capitals of science and of art, ought not to grudge those who toil underground at the foundation the praise that is due to their patience and self-denial. There is a variety of tastes and capacities that requires all the variety of men's talents to administer to it. The less excellent must be provided for as well as the more excellent. Those who are only capable of amusement ought to be amused. If all men were forced to be great philosophers and lasting benefactors of their species, how few of us could ever do anything at all. But nature acts more impartially, though not improvidently. Wherever she bestows a turn for anything on the individual, she implants a corresponding taste for it in others. We have only to throw our bread upon the waters, and after many days we shall find it again. Let us do our best, and we need not be ashamed of the smallness of our talent, or afraid of the calumnies and contempt of envious maligners. When Goldsmith was talking one day to Sir Joshua of writing a fable in which little fishes were to be introduced, Dr. Johnson rolled about uneasily in his seat and began to laugh, 
on which Goldsmith said rather angrily, Why do you laugh? If you were to write a fable for little fishes, you would make them speak like great whales. The reproof was just. Johnson was in truth conscious of Goldsmith's superior inventiveness and of the lighter graces of his pen, but he wished to reduce everything to his own pompous and oracular style. There are not only books for children, but books for all ages and for both sexes. After we grow up to years of discretion, we do not all become equally wise at once. Our own tastes change. The tastes of other individuals are still more different. It was said the other day that Thompson's Seasons would be read while there was a boarding-school girl in the world. If a thousand volumes were written against Hervey's meditations, the meditations would be read when the criticisms were forgotten. To the illiterate and vain, affectation and verbiage will always pass for fine writing, while the world stands. No woman ever liked Burke or disliked Goldsmith. It is idle to set up an universal standard. There is a large class who, in spite of themselves, prefer Westall or Angelica Kaufman to Raphael, nor is it fit they should do otherwise. We may come to something like a fixed and exclusive standard of taste if we confine ourselves to what will please the best judges, meaning thereby persons of the most refined and cultivated minds, and by persons of the most refined and cultivated minds, generally meaning ourselves. To return to the original question, I can conceive of nothing so little or so ridiculous as pride. It is a mixture of insensibility and ill-nature, in which it is hard to say which has the largest share. If a man knows, or excels in, or has ever studied any two things, I will venture to affirm he will be proud of neither. It is perhaps excusable for a person who is ignorant of all but one thing, to think that the sole excellence, and to be full of himself as the possessor. The way to cure him of this folly is to give him something else to be proud of. Vanity is a building that falls to the ground as you widen its foundation, or strengthen the props that should support it. The greater a man is, the less he necessarily thinks of himself, for his knowledge enlarges with his attainments. In himself he feels that he is nothing, a point, a speck in the universe, except as his mind reflects that universe, and as he enters into the infinite variety of truth, beauty, and power contained in it. Let any one be brought up among books, and taught to think words the only things, and he may conceive highly of himself from the proficiency he has made in language and in letters. Let him then be compelled to attempt some other pursuit, painting, for instance, and be made to feel the difficulties, the refinements of which it is capable, and the number of things of which he was utterly ignorant before, and there will be an end of his pedantry and his pride together. Nothing but the want of comprehension of view or generosity of spirit can make any one fix on his own particular acquirement as the limit of all excellence. No one is, generally speaking, great in more than one thing. If he extends his pursuits, he dissipates his strength. Yet in that one thing, how small is the interval between him and the next in merit and reputation to himself? But he thinks nothing of, or scorns or loathes, the name of his rival, so that all that the other possesses in common goes for nothing, and the fraction of a difference between them constitutes, in his opinion, the sum and substance of all that is excellent in the universe. Let a man be wise, and then let us ask, will his wisdom make him proud? 
let him excel all others in the graces of the mind, has he also those of the body. He has the advantage of fortune, but has he also that of birth? Or if he has both, has he health, strength, beauty, in a supreme degree? Or have not others the same? Or does he think all these nothing, because he does not possess them? The proud man fancies that there is no one worth regarding but himself. He might as well fancy there is no other being but himself. The one is not a greater stretch of madness than the other. To make pride justifiable, there ought to be but one proud man in the world. For if any one individual has a right to be so, nobody else has. So far from thinking ourselves superior to all the rest of the species, we cannot be sure that we are above the meanest and most despised individual of it. For he may have some virtue, some excellence, some source of happiness, or usefulness within himself, which may redeem all other disadvantages. Or, even if he is without any such hidden worth, this is not a subject of exultation, but of regret to any one tinctured with the smallest humanity. And he who is totally devoid of the latter cannot have much reason to be proud of anything else. Arkwright, who invented the spinning jenny, for many years kept a paltry barber's shop in a provincial town, yet at that time that wonderful machinery was working in his brain, which has added more to the wealth and resources of this country than all the pride of ancestry or insolence of upstart nobility for the last hundred years. We should be cautious whom we despise. If we do not know them, we can have no right to pronounce a hasty sentence. If we do, they may spy some few defects in us. No man is a hero to his valet de chambre. What is it, then, that makes the difference? The dress and pride, but he is the most of a hero, who is least distinguished by the one, and most free from the other. If we enter into conversation upon equal terms with the lowest of the people, unrestrained by circumstance, unawed by interest, we shall find in ourselves but little superiority over them. If we know what they do not, they know what we do not. In general, those who do things for others know more about them than those for whom they are done. A groom knows more about horses than his master. He rides them too, but the one rides behind, the other before. Hence, the number of forms and ceremonies that have been invented to keep the magic circle of fancied self-importance inviolate. The late king sought but one interview with Dr. Johnson. His present majesty is never tired of the company of Mr. Croker. The collision of truth or genius naturally gives a shock to the pride of exalted rank. The great and mighty usually seek out the dregs of mankind, buffoons and flatterers, for their pampered self-love to repose on. Pride soon tires of everything but its shadow, servility. But how poor a triumph is that which exists only by excluding all rivalry, however remote! He who invites competition, the only test of merit, who challenges fair comparisons, and weighs different claims, is alone possessed of manly ambition, but will not long continue vain or proud. Pride is a cell of ignorance, travelling a bed. If we look at all out of ourselves, we must see how far short we are of what we would be thought. The man of genius is poor. 
the rich man is not a lord. The lord wants to be a king. The king is uneasy to be a tyrant, or a god. Yet he alone, who could claim this last character upon earth, gave his life a ransom for others. The dwarf in the romance, who saw the shadows of the fairest and the mightiest among the sons of men pass before him, that he might assume the shape he liked best, had only his choice of wealth or beauty or valour or power. But could he have clutched them all and melted them into one essence of pride, the triumph would not have been lasting. Could vanity take all pomp and power to itself? Could it, like the rainbow, span the earth and seem to prop the heavens? After all, it would be but the wonder of the ignorant, the pageant of a moment. The fool who dreams that he is great should first forget that he is a man, and before he thinks of being proud, should pray to be mad. The only great man in modern times, that is, the only man who rose in deeds and fame, to the level of antiquity, who might turn his gaze upon himself and wonder at his height, for on him all eyes were fixed, as his majestic stature towered above thrones and monuments of renown, died the other day in exile, and in lingering agony, and we still see fellows strutting about the streets, and fancying they are something. Personal vanity is incompatible with the great and the ideal. He who has not seen, or thought, or read of something finer than himself, has seen or read or thought little, and he who has will not be always looking in the glass of his own vanity. Hence poets, artists, and men of genius in general, are seldom coxcombs, but often slovens, for they find something out of themselves better worth studying than their own persons. They have an imaginary standard in their minds, with which ordinary features, even their own, will not bear a comparison, and they turn their thoughts another way. If a man had a face like one of Raphael's or Titian's heads, he might be proud of it, but not else, and even then, he would be stared at as a nondescript by the universal English nation. Few persons who have seen the Antinous or the Theseus will be much charmed with their own beauty or symmetry, nor will those who understand the costume of the antique or Van Dyck's dresses spend much time in decking themselves out in all the deformity of the prevailing fashion. A coxcomb is his own lay figure for want of any better models to employ his time and imagination upon. There is an inverted sort of pride, the reverse of that egotism that has been above described, and which, because it cannot be everything, is dissatisfied with everything. A person who is liable to this infirmity thinks nothing done while anything remains to be done. The sanguine egotist prides himself on what he can do or possesses. The morbid egotist despises himself for what he wants, and is ever going out of his way to attempt hopeless and impossible tasks. The effect in either case is not at all owing to reason, but to temperament. The one is as easily depressed by what mortifies his latent ambition, as the other is elated by what flatters his immediate vanity. There are persons whom no success, no advantages, no applause, can satisfy, for they dwell only on failure and defeat. 
they constantly forget the things that are behind and press forward to the things that are before. The greatest and most decided acquisitions would not indemnify them for the smallest deficiency. They go beyond the old motto, out Caesar, out nihil. They not only want to be at the head of whatever they undertake, but if they succeed in that, they immediately want to be at the head of something else, no matter how gross or trivial. The charm that rivets their affections is not the importance or reputation annexed to the new pursuit, but its novelty or difficulty. That must be a wonderful accomplishment indeed which baffles their skill. Nothing is with them of any value, but as it gives scope to their restless activity of mind, their craving after an uneasy and importunate state of excitement. To them the pursuit is everything, the possession nothing. I have known persons of this stamp who, with every reason to be satisfied with their success in life, and with the opinion entertained of them by others, despised themselves because they could not do something which they were not bound to do, and which, if they could have done it, would not have added one jot to their respectability, either in their own eyes or those of any one else, the very insignificance of the attainment irritating their impatience, for it is the humour of such dispositions to argue, if they cannot succeed in what is trifling and contemptible, how should they succeed in anything else? If they could make the circuit of the arts and sciences, and master them all, they would take to some mechanical exercise, and if they failed, be as discontented as ever. All that they can do vanishes out of sight, the moment it is within their grasp, and nothing is but what is not. A poet of this description is ambitious of the thews and muscles of a prize-fighter, and thinks himself nothing without them. A prose-writer would be a fine tennis-player, and is thrown into despair because he is not one, without considering that it requires a whole life devoted to the game to excel in it, and that, even if he could dispense with this apprenticeship, he would still be just as much bound to excel in rope-dancing, or horsemanship, or playing at cup-and-ball like the Indian jugglers, all which is impossible. This feeling is a strange mixture of modesty and pride. We think nothing of what we are, because we cannot be everything with a wish. Goldsmith was even jealous of beauty in the other sex, and the same character is attributed to Wharton by Pope. Though listening senates hung on all he spoke, the club must hail him master of the joke. Players are for going into the church. Officers in the army turn players. For myself, do what I might, I should think myself a poor creature, unless I could beat a boy of ten years old at chuck-farthing, or an elderly gentlewoman at piquet. The extreme of fastidious discontent and repining is as bad as that of overweening presumption. We ought to be satisfied if we have succeeded in any one thing, or with having done our best. Anything more is for health and amusement, and should be resorted to as a source of pleasure, not of fretful impatience and endless pity, self-imposed mortification. Perhaps the jealous, uneasy temperament is most favourable to continued exertion and improvement, if it does not lead us to fritter away attention on too many pursuits. By looking out of ourselves, we gain knowledge. By being little satisfied with what we have done, we are less apt to sink into indolence and security. To conclude with a piece of egotism, I never begin one of these essays, with a consciousness of having written a line before, and having got to the end of the volume, 
we hope never to look into it again. End of section 19